Hi, good morning. It's good to see you this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 10. If you're at the retreat this weekend, I hope you've recovered. I will admit that Friday night was not the best night of sleep of my life. It's amazing how being in your 40s and sleeping in a bunk bed with a group of kids around you does not allow for the best night of sleep. Uh, My goal this morning is not to fall asleep while I'm preaching, which I think is a good goal for the preacher. Uh, But if you're not at the treat, we're glad you're here with us. I trust you had a better night of sleep than I did on Friday. Uh, But even if you're not at the treat, Jim mentioned that we are continuing our theme of treasure this morning. That's true. But even if you're not at the retreat, don't worry. This is not like the fourth part of a four-part movie series where if you didn't see the first three movies, you'll have no idea what's going on. Uh, We are having a standalone message here on the idea of Jesus being the treasure, which is a continuation of what we talked about this weekend. Uh, just to put ourselves in the, in the bigger context of where we are from a preaching standpoint, as Jim mentioned, we just finished a series on the book of James. Next week, we'll be in the book of Ezra. That's where we're heading. But this morning, we're in Hebrews chapter 10, thinking about this idea of Jesus as a great treasure. Let me pray, and then we'll get to it. Uh, Father, we want to pause here this morning. We do pray that you would help us to keep our eyes on you. Lord, every week, we know that there are things that happen that Give us the opportunity to look elsewhere. Maybe there are troubles of life, or or maybe there are difficulties, or maybe there are stresses. Maybe there are just things that are going on that that maybe would give us the temptation to look away from you. We know at the end of the day, the only thing that will satisfy us, the only thing that will give us joy that is unspeakable, is to look to you. So God, we do pray that our eyes would look to you even this morning as we open up Hebrews chapter 10. We pray that we would see you are the treasure of immeasurable value and that our desire would be to live for you and that because we're living for you, there'd just be things about us that are different. So Lord, would you please work in us this morning through the preaching of your word to help us see you as the great treasure and then to live differently and to think differently. Lord, would you do this for your glory and for our good. In Christ's name, amen. So given that the theme for our retreat this past weekend was unburied treasure, and given that we've been talking a lot about the retreat and planning a lot for the retreat the last several months, in the last few weeks and months, I've had plenty of opportunities to think about the idea of treasure. And one of the conclusions I've come to is that treasure makes you do funny things. When you believe that there's a treasure, you take actions that will make no sense apart from your belief in that treasure. Now history, of course, is filled with all kinds of examples of this reality from a material treasure standpoint. Whether it be explorers looking for the fabled golden city of El Dorado, or treasure hunters searching the ruins of lost ships, or adventurers moving west in the 1840s to look for gold, time and again, history has proven that if people believe there is treasure, they will take dramatic action that makes no sense apart from their belief in that treasure. How many people have lost their lives diving deep into the ocean or deep into frozen lakes all because they believed that there was treasure at the bottom? How many people have uprooted their lives to trek through jungles or explore dangerous caves simply because they were convinced that riches were waiting? How many people have ignored the skepticism of their friends or family members to risk everything and spend all of their resources looking for a treasure that they may or may not ever find? When you believe that there is treasure, you do weird things. You take actions that make no sense apart from your belief in that treasure. But as much as that's true in a material sense, it's certainly also true in a spiritual sense. More specifically, as it relates to our faith in Jesus Christ, if you believe that Christ is the great treasure, you will do and think strange things. For example, you'll sacrifice your comfort to know Jesus more and to make him known to others. You'll start seeing your money and time as means of advancing the kingdom of God rather than as means of fulfilling your own pleasures. 
You'll prioritize the pursuit of Christ over the pursuit of worldly success and ambition. You'll adopt the mindset that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Metaphorically speaking, to speak of the most famous passage in all the New Testament about treasure, you will sell everything you have to buy the field. Because in that field, you know that there's a treasure more valuable than anything else. In other words, what I'm saying is this. If you believe that Jesus Christ really is the great treasure, you will do and think strange things because Christ is more valuable to you than anything else. Because this is what treasure does. It reorients our thinking and causes us to take dramatic action. But of all the strange things that come about as a result of seeing Christ as the great treasure, perhaps one of the strangest is that those who see Christ as the great treasure are able to have joy even in the midst of suffering. I'm talking about joy that makes no sense. I'm talking about inexplicable joy. That apart from the idea that Jesus Christ is the great treasure would not make sense to anyone. I'm talking about the ability to have joy in the midst of the difficulties of life, including our own trials and struggles. That type of joy, that inexplicable joy is strange. In fact, it's really strange. But it's that type of joy that's on display in our passage today. In Hebrews 10, 32 to 39, the author of Hebrews describes a joy that is inexplicable in nature. It makes no sense apart from the belief that Jesus Christ is the great treasure. And so my hope this morning is that as we turn our attention to Hebrews chapter 10, that we would see Christ is the great treasure. And in doing so, my hope is that we would then have the inexplicable joy that's described in this passage. The joy that makes no sense apart from belief that Jesus is more valuable than anything else. So that said, if you're able, please stand out of reverence for the reading of God's word. Hebrews 10, verses 32 to 39. Where we find ourselves this morning. So, Hebrews 10, 32, 39, the words will be on the screen. You can just listen as I read or you can follow along in your own Bibles. But the Word of God says this, beginning in verse 32. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. It's the word of God. You may be seated. Now, ever since I became a Christian, I started taking the word of God seriously. I've always loved this particular passage. And one of the reasons I've loved this passage is because it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. In particular, I've always been drawn to the oddity of the language in verse 34. I want to read that section again because I think that captures perfectly the overall tone of this passage. Verse 34 for you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Now listen, I don't know about you, but the idea of someone plundering your property, whether it be taking your property from you or messing with your property, is not an idea that gives me warm and fuzzy ideas. In fact, I would guess that most people experience would say, well, it's, it's not something that normally brings joy. We had some friends in Kentucky who once had their house broken into. 
Apparently the thieves had been watching their house for a while because they knew exactly when the family was going to be gone and they broke in at that time. Now I can't even remember what they took, but for our friends it was a very unsettling experience. The idea that someone was in their house, someone was watching their property, someone was rummaging through their things and taking their stuff, it was not just upsetting, but it was creepy. And I suspect if any of us were in their shoes, we would feel the exact same way. Someone plundering your property does not seem pleasant, which is why verse 34 should get all of our attention. It's one thing to persevere and endure someone plundering your property. If the author of Hebrews would have said that, that would be one thing. You endured the plundering of your property. That, that would be normal, good. It would actually be commendable. But it's quite another to say they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. And yet that's the language that's used in verse 34. And so my question this morning is simply this. How is that possible? How is it possible that you could see the plundering of your property as a thing that results in joy? How can you, how can you joyfully receive something like that? Or to ask the question more broadly, how can you have joy even in the midst of great difficulty and trials? In the midst of the brokenness of this world, how can you be joyful? Now I think the short answer to that question is that when Jesus is your treasure, it changes the way you see everything, including your trials and difficulties. But the longer answer to the question, the one I want to flesh out in our passage today is this. God's past faithfulness and God's promise of future reward Give us the ability to endure present trials and do so with joy. I think that's the main idea of the passage, certainly the main idea of what I want to communicate this morning. So to make sure we're on the same page, let me say it one more time here. God's past faithfulness and God's promise of future reward give us the ability to endure present trials and to do so with joy. In this passage, I think the main point that the author of Hebrews is trying to drive home, or the main thing he's trying to accomplish, is he's wanting to encourage his readers to endure their present trials, to not give up on their faith, to not shrink back, to not throw away their confidence. And he encourages them to do so by both reminding them of the past and pointing them to the future. I think it's crucial that we see both of those elements in this passage. So notice first that the author of Hebrews points back Verses 32 to 34, he says this, But recall the former days, when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and abiding one. Now again, I think the author's intent in this passage is to encourage his readers not to give up on their faith, in the midst of their present difficulty. But to do that, the author of Hebrews first points back. He reminds his readers of what they've already endured by the grace of God. As the author says it in verse 32, recall the former days. He says, recall that when you first became Christians, you endured a hard struggle with suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Other times you identified with those who were in the same boat. You had compassion on those in prison, he says. Presumably visiting them, caring for them, identifying with them. You even joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, saying, remember those things. And implied in that call to remember is this idea that God sustained them in the past. In the past, the author of Hebrews is saying, God's grace was sufficient to get you through those things. It's because God was faithful in the past, they shouldn't give up now. 
which is the connection that the author of Hebrews then makes in verses 35 to 39. He makes that connection that their past experience should encourage them going forward. Look at verses 35 to 39. Verse 35, therefore, therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what's promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul is no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now in verse 35, you see the word therefore, and as we've said regularly, when you see the word therefore, you have to ask the question, what's the therefore therefore? And in this case, I think it's pretty obvious, the author of Hebrews is trying to connect what he's just said in verses 32 to 34 about God's past faithfulness to what he then says in verses 35 to 39. In other words, he's reminding them of their past trials and the way in which they endured those trials by the grace of God, and then using that past experience to plead with them to hold to their faith now, to endure and hold fast to Christ. As verse 35 puts it, therefore, in other words, in light of God's past faithfulness, do not throw away your confidence now, which has a great reward. So one of the ways that we endure present trials is by remembering how God has sustained us in the past. But in order to encourage present endurance, the author of Hebrews doesn't just point back, he also points forward. And specifically, he reminds them of the future promises that are theirs in Christ. This focus on the future is everywhere in the passage, starting in verse 34. Again, the passage we've already read. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So why were they joyful when their property was being plundered? Because they knew they had a better possession that was coming, an abiding one. This is obviously a reference to eternity. What they're saying, or, or what sustained them, is that they knew the treasures of heaven far outpaced the treasures of this earth. And that forward focus enabled them to have joy even when their property was being plundered. But we see this forward focus everywhere in the passage. Again, verse 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. No doubt the reward mentioned here in verse 35 is the reward still to come. The reward of being with Christ forever. Experiencing the joy of being in his presence. This is the reward that all who love Christ and long for his return will experience. This same reward is alluded to again in verse 36. Verse 36, for you have need of confidence, or excuse me, of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what's promised. Again, what's promised here is eternity with Christ. And that promise will come to fruition when Jesus returns, which is something the author alludes to in verse 37. 37, for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. Jesus is the coming one. In a little while, he will come and he will not delay. He's coming again. And those who hold fast to him will preserve their souls, which is how the author ends the passage, verse 39. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So in just eight short verses here, the author of Hebrews points to or alludes to the future promises that are ours in Christ at least five different times. And in almost every instance, he's doing so as a means of encouraging present faithfulness. He's saying, don't shrink back now. Don't throw away your confidence now. Endure present trials now. Why? Because the future promises we have are sure. Those who are in Christ have a better reward, a better and abiding possession. Their souls will be preserved and they will live with him forever. And because that's true, the people of God can live differently now. 
people may take our possessions or plunder our property, but they cannot touch our better and abiding possession that's still to come. They may take our freedom or our way of living, but they cannot take away the forgiveness we've received in Christ. They may even take our lives, but they cannot touch our souls because our souls have been preserved unto life through the forgiveness that we've received in Jesus Christ. The future promises of Christ give us the ability to endure trials now and to do so with joy because we know there's a better future on the way. And again, that's the point of the passage. God's past faithfulness and God's promise of future reward give us the ability to endure present trials now and to do so with joy. And in light of that, I think the action steps that we need to take in response to this passage are pretty straightforward this morning. First, we need to remember God's past faithfulness. Secondly, we need to look to the future reward. And third, we need to endure and hold fast to Christ in the midst of present trials. And given the importance of each of those three action steps, and by the way, these are things that are seen throughout the New Testament, not just Hebrews 10. I think it's worth thinking about each of these three in turn. So that's what I want to do in the rest of our time together this morning. I want us to consider each of the three action steps that naturally flow from this passage. So action step number one, remember God's past faithfulness. Remember God's past faithfulness. Now I have to admit, there are quite a few things about getting older that I do not enjoy. As an example, about a week ago, I somehow got involved in a dodgeball game. Now when I was a kid, I could play dodgeball all day. And back in the day, if you'll permit me to be back in the day guy, we didn't even play with soft foam dodgeballs that people use now. We played with hard rubber balls that carried a legitimate risk of facial injury or even concussion. But be that as it may, I still loved dodgeball as a kid. And if I played one day, no doubt I was ready to play the next day. But here's what I discovered from my dodgeball adventure this past weekend. My body does not recover the way that it used to. The day after dodgeball, my son Elijah asked if I could go play some tennis with him. And when I went to serve, I could barely lift my arm above my head. I'm pretty sure I served like T-Rex that day, just trying to get it over. I gutted through it, but it was painful. I'm telling you, my body is not what it used to be. And I don't enjoy that aspect of getting older. But having said that, there are some aspects of getting older that I actually do enjoy. And one of those aspects is that the longer I live, and the more of life that I see in the rearview mirror, the more opportunity I have to be able to look back and see how God has been faithful. When I was 20 and something bad would happen to me, I didn't have a reservoir of experiences to draw from and look back and say, well, God was faithful during that trial. But now that I'm in my 40s, I have many such experiences to draw on. Now, to be honest, a lot of those experiences have been painful. But even in the pain, I can look back and I can see God was faithful. But I think the question for all of us is, will we take the time to actually do that? Will we take the time to actually look back and reflect on God's faithfulness? Maybe you've heard me use this phrase before, but I think it's worth using again. God's providence is almost always easier to see in the rearview mirror than it is to see through the windshield. Now, that's not a phrase that I made up. I don't even know who said it originally, but it's one I found to be very helpful over the years. And the basic idea of the phrase is this. Sometimes it's hard to see what God is doing in real time. As you look through the windshield, you're wondering, what is God doing here? But when you look back in the rearview mirror, you can often see, okay, I can see how God was at work even in that trial. Now, I know this is something I've experienced in my own life. When Dawson first got sick, I couldn't really see what God was doing. And even though now I still have questions what God is up to and all of that, I can legitimately say that I see God's faithfulness when I look in the rearview mirror. When I reflect back, I can see many ways that God has used Dawson's sickness in his life, in my life, 
in our family's life and in other people's lives. God has been faithful every step of the way. But here's the thing, I have to make a choice to look in the rearview mirror and reflect on that faithfulness because my natural tendency is to forget. As an example, when Tanya got sick last year, my first instinct was not to think, well, God was faithful with Dawson, he'll be faithful in this instance too. Rather, my first instinct was to panic and to be anxious, to feel sorry for Tanya and myself and our family. And listen, some of that's normal, and there's actually biblical warrant to lament the brokenness of this world. In fact, there's a biblical expectation that we would lament. So I'm not saying my first response needs to be, oh, God's faithful, this will be fine. No, there is appropriate occasion to lament, but at some point in the midst of my despair, I had to look in the rearview mirror and remember, God has been faithful in the past, even in trials, and he will be faithful again. Now, there's a reason why the author of Hebrews has to encourage his readers in verse 32 to recall their former days. And the reason he has to do that, presumably, is because it's easy to forget. It's easy to forget. But listen, there's blessing in remembering. And in fact, those who train themselves to look back in the rearview mirror and see God's faithfulness are just amazing people to be around. In fact, some of my favorite people in the world are older saints who've lived through serious trials And based on their experiences, and based on their ability to look back and see God's faithfulness, they have this rock-solid confidence that no matter what comes their way, God is going to work it out. When I think of a person like this, I think of a lady named Miss Sue that I've told you about before. When I was a youth pastor in Texas, there was a period of major upheaval at our church. I'm talking really serious stuff. I'm talking about people on staff trying to get other people on staff fired. I'm talking about people trying to take over the pulpit one Sunday morning. Crazy stuff. But in the midst of this turmoil, when I ran into Miss Sue, and this is the part of the story I've shared before, Miss Sue was as cool as a cucumber. Ran into her in the hallway. I'm like, how's it going? What are you thinking about all this? And she said, listen, I've been at this church 50 years. I've seen a lot of things, a lot of good things, a lot of bad things. I've seen people come. I've seen people go. But this is the one thing I know. God is good. He'll take care of this. Well, that's the type of thing you can only say if you've lived life and taken the time to reflect on God's past faithfulness in the midst of trials and difficulty. Now compare Miss Sue to the average person who is getting older. Many older people have the tendency to become bitter and angry and jaded as they age. It's not hard to see why, is it? The world's messed up. Bad stuff happens. But I'm convinced that what keeps the Miss Sues of this world, and by the way, we have some Miss Sues at this church, and they are a blessing. Listen, what keeps the Miss Sues of this world from going down the path of bitterness and anger is the discipline of being able to look back and remember God's faithfulness. Church, if you want to endure current trials, one of the key ingredients in the recipe is the ability to look back and remember, no, God has been faithful in the past, he will be faithful again. It's to recall the former days and remember how God has sustained you in the midst of great trials. So listen, if you're not in the habit of reflecting on God's past faithfulness, let me encourage you to start that habit. Maybe it's something as simple as today at lunch, as you're gathered with your family, taking five or ten minutes. It doesn't have to be a four-hour conversation. If you want it to be, that's great, but it doesn't have to be. Just five or ten minutes where you reflect together. How has God been faithful to us in the past year? Or maybe you have another habit you want to establish. Whatever it is, that's great. But my point is simply this. If we are wanting to endure current trials, we need to get in the habit of remembering God's past faithfulness. But remembering God's past faithfulness is not the only part of the recipe to endure present to endure present trials. Action step number two is another part of the recipe. We need to look to the future reward. 
We need to look to the future reward. Now, as we pointed out earlier, the author of Hebrews begins this passage by challenging his readers to recall the past. But as we also pointed out, the author of Hebrews relentlessly in this passage points forward. He points forward to the reward to come. In fact, the promise of future reward is scattered everywhere through this passage. As we mentioned earlier, five times in eight verses, the author of Hebrews points forward to future promises. And he does so as a means of motivating current living. Now, the past is important because it helps us remember, okay, this is what God has done. But the future rewards are crucial because they remind us things won't always be this way. And understanding that things won't always be this way, I would argue, is a key component of present endurance. Maybe the key component. To illustrate what I mean, there was a a period of time in our marriage where Tony and I got out of the habit of working out regularly. We're not in very good shape. We crossed into our 30s and our metabolism had started to dissipate. And we had this kind of aha moment where we realized, okay, we need to do something about our exercise issue or eventually we're going to start running into some serious health, some serious health issues. So for me, I decided I'm going to start running. And at first, I'm just going to tell you it was not easy. In fact, I vividly remember one particular run early on in the process where I ran a couple of miles and afterwards I felt like I was going to die. Now, Mind you, while I was running, I also felt like I was going to die. But afterwards, I especially felt like I'm going to die. But I kept plugging away at running, and it wasn't because of my survival of those early bad runs that gave me confidence to keep enduring the misery. No, the reason I endured is because I had an expectation eventually things are going to get better. I had this hope that I would get in better shape, and eventually running would not be so stinking miserable. Now, my past experience of enduring misery in those early runs might have been helpful in some ways, but the thing that really got me going forward was this realization eventually things won't be this way. It would be one thing to keep running and say, well, every time's going to be miserable. It's just always going to be miserable, but I've done the past, I can do it again. That'd be one thing, but to realize, okay, eventually it's going to get better, that changes your perspective. In the same way, I would say this, remembering God's past faithfulness and trials, that's an important part of the endurance process. But at the end of the day, what motivates us is an understanding is it won't always be this way. That one day, the difficulties of this world will no longer exist. Listen, one day there will be no more sickness. There will be no more trips to the doctor. No more chemotherapy. No more infusions at Children's Hospital. One day, the problems of this world will be no more. No more wars. No more crooked politicians. No more terrorists, no more persecution. One day, the wickedness of this world will finally be vanquished. No more sex traffickers, no more child abusers, no more bullies at school, no more predators and dark alleys. What we see now, dimly, in terms of the goodness of creation, we will one day see clearly, and it will be glorious. And listen, this is the reality that we're striving to set our eyes on, that things won't always be this way. And when we can fix our eyes on that reality, it gives us the ability to have joy even in the midst of our trials. Because they can plunder our property, but they can't touch our eternal inheritance. They can persecute us, but they can't destroy us. They can throw us in jail and separate us from our families, but they cannot separate us from the love of Christ. The reality of eternal promises that await us give us the ability to endure even the worst things that this world has to offer. Because things won't always be this way. But as was the case with reflecting on God's past faithfulness, we have to make a choice and get in the habit of looking forward to the future promises too. And I would argue that's potentially even more difficult because the reward that we're looking towards is unseen. 
And that's challenging, isn't it? Because meditating on something you've never experienced or seen is hard. Listen, if I've been to New Zealand or seen pictures of New Zealand, I can at least have some idea of what to expect if I were to go on a trip to New Zealand. But if I've never been there or never seen pictures, it's a lot harder to know what to expect. I think what we need to understand this morning is this. While we've never been to the new heavens and new earth, and while we don't have a picture per se, what we do have is the sure testimony of Scripture. And because the Bible is God's word, that testimony of Scripture is enough. Jesus is going to come again. He's going to come again. And those who've trusted in him for forgiveness of sins will be with him forever. And although we don't know all that this will entail, what we do know is it's going to be awesome. We will be with him. There'll be no more brokenness, no more sorrow or sickness, no more sin, no more death. And we need to encourage one another with these words. We need to talk regularly and frequently and passionately about the future promises of reward that are ours in Christ. When you read the New Testament, it's pretty clear that the promises of future glory are not just a side issue that the early church thought about on occasion. On the contrary, the promises of future glory were absolutely necessary. Pieces of information that sustained the church and kept them from falling away. For Christians living in the early first century, life was not easy. As even in this passage reminds us, Christians in the first century faced persecution, public shame, imprisonment, and all kinds of other terrible things. For Christians living in that setting, the promises of future glory were like, were like an oasis of water in a dry and weary desert. When you're getting persecuted and imprisoned and ostracized, and in some cases facing death, the one thing that sustains you is the idea that things won't always be this way. Listen, the more difficult life is now, the more precious the promises of future glory. And to that end, I would just say this. I think one of the reasons we as the American church don't talk about future promises that much is because our life here is pretty comfortable. Now, sometimes sickness and trials force us to look to the future promises, but I suspect if more persecution comes our way, which it might, those promises will become even more precious. So listen, we might as well get in the habit of now of looking to the future reward. It's action step number two. Action step number three is really a combination of the first two. In light of step one and two, action step number three, endure and hold fast to Christ in the midst of present trials. Look at verses 35 and 36. Again, this is the connection. He's pointing back, he's pointing forward, but then he says this. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what's promised. Now, I think verse 36 is a key piece in the puzzle here, as it gives us a couple of crucial pieces of information. First, it helps us to understand that endurance will be necessary for the Christian life. Second, it helps us to understand what endurance looks like. So notice first the necessity of endurance, the first part of verse 36. For you have need of endurance. Several years ago, our family watched a documentary about an endurance race. I forget where the race took place or what it was called, but basically the race was just one series of torturous events after another. Kayak miles through an ocean, run 20 miles through a jungle infested by mosquitoes, swim for hours down an icy cold river, bike on a trail that's so muddy that at times you can't even ride your bike, you just have to pick it up and carry it. Really fun stuff, right? But listen, that's what you would expect of an endurance race. You would expect it's going to be hard. In fact, you would expect it's going to require endurance. They would have advertised a documentary about an endurance race and then showed people lounging on the beach drinking lemonade and eating pastries. I would have thought, okay, this doesn't line up. 
Right? Drinking lemonade on the beach does not require endurance. Swimming two miles through icy cold water, that requires endurance. So when the author of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us, we're going to need endurance for the Christian life, that tells us something, doesn't it? The Christian life is going to be more like a 20-mile run through the jungle and less like eating pastries on the beach. It requires endurance. And this passage makes that clear. But this passage also helps to clarify what endurance looks like. Look at verse 36 here again. For you have need of endurance so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what's promised. Now I think sometimes when we think of endurance, we think of passivity. We think, just stand there and take it. Endure. Endure the beating. But as verse 36 reminds us, in the Christian life, endurance is not passive, it's active. And specifically, it means being obedient to God's commands or, as author of Hebrews says it here, doing the will of God. And that's the thing I would say about many people today who say they're Christians. A lot of people say that they're holding fast to Christ and thus they're enduring, but they have no interest in actually obeying what his word teaches. But listen, if you're not actually following his commands, doing his will, then you're not actually enduring in the Christian race. In the Christian race. As the author of Hebrews tells us, when we've done the will of God and thus endured by obeying his commands, it's then that we'll receive what's promised. Now to be clear here, the author of Hebrews is not suggesting that we're saved by our obedience or our endurance. As the rest of Hebrews makes clear and the rest of the New Testament certainly makes clear, we're saved by the work of Christ on the cross, period. It's only what Christ has done that rescues us. It's only what Jesus has done by going to the cross, paying the punishment we deserve to pay, and raising from the dead. This is our only hope. It's not what we do. It's what Christ has done. But one of the evidences that we know Christ and are in Christ is that we will endure. And we endure by doing his will, obeying his commands. So having said that, let me just speak a word of encouragement here. Some of you right now in this room are feeling weary and exhausted. The present difficulties of life are weighing you down. And you're not sure if you have it in you to keep following Jesus. Maybe you're facing persecution at work. Maybe someone in your family is sick or dying, and you're just wondering, is following Christ worth it? Let me plead with you this morning. Endure. Endure by remembering God's past faithfulness. Endure by remembering God's future promises. Endure by recalling the cross and what Jesus has done for you. Don't give up. Keep pressing ahead. Even if it feels like swimming through the icy waters is hard, and it is, endure. And do so knowing that joy is possible, even in the midst of life's difficulties and trials. As one commentator I read this week pointed out, there are three things that can happen to a Christian in this life. First, we can have a blessed life with smooth sailing. Little difficulties, that's a good thing. Two, we can suffer, and in the process we can become more like Jesus. That too is a good thing. Or third, we can die and be with Christ in glory. That's the best thing. So for those of us who are in Christ, we can't lose. When Christ is our great treasure, joy is always possible. Now that's not to say life will be easy, is it? There's a reason why we're called to endure. The author of Hebrews does not say you'll have a need of relaxation. Or you'll have a need of lounging. No, he says you'll have need of endurance. But when we consider God's past faithfulness, when we consider his future rewards, when we see that Christ is the great treasure, we can endure. And strange as it may sound, we can even have joy in the midst of our difficulties. So church, my encouragement to us this morning is let's look to Christ. Let's live for Christ and let's treasure Christ above all else. 
Because when we see Christ as the great treasure, we will do strange things, but we will experience great joy. That's what treasure does. It makes you live differently. So let's see Jesus as the great treasure, and let's live differently in light of who he is. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for the reminder here in Hebrews 10 of your past faithfulness, of your future rewards, and of our current need of endurance. God, I pray that you would give us that endurance this morning for your joy, or for our joy and for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So one of the things that we like to do at this church on this Sunday's opposite of Lord's Supper is just spend some time praying. And so I'm going to encourage you to use the format of what we talked about this morning, Hebrews 10, as your guideline for prayer, to think about God's past faithfulness, maybe to remember how God has been faithful in the past, to look forward to the future rewards, that uh, maybe asking God to help set your heart on those future rewards, and to ask him to give you present endurance, so past, present, future. Use that as your guideline for prayer. If you want to pray with the people you came with, that's awesome. I encourage you to do so. If you're a person who likes to pray by yourself, that's okay, or journal, go for it. We just want to spend about five minutes praying here, praying in light of what we've just read in Hebrews 10. So let's go for it. Let's pray, and then I'll close this down here in a few minutes.
God, we want to pause this morning. I want to thank you for your past faithfulness. We take the time to look in the rearview mirror. We know that you have been faithful to sustain us. So we thank you for that. We thank you for all of the kindness you've shown us over the years, most notably for those of us who know Christ and our salvation. Thank you, Lord. We thank you for the precious promises of future reward that are ours in Jesus Christ too. We know that one day things won't be this way anymore. And we're so grateful for that. In fact, we long for that day when you return and things are made right. But in the meantime, we know that we live in this weird world of the already and the not yet. Your kingdom has already come in some ways, and yet we're waiting for the full consummation when you return. And so in the meantime, we live in this broken world, and we have to endure. I pray that you would give us the ability to endure. And we do so because we realize you are the great treasure, and you're worth living for. And you are the one who sustains us. So help us, Lord. In the midst of life's difficulties, help us to keep pressing on. Help us to not give up, to not throw away our confidence, to not shrink back. But instead, to boldly stand on the hope that we have in you. That we are great sinners, but you are a great Savior, and you are worth living for. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, one last thing before our benediction. This is the second Sunday of the month, which means that we have a benevolent offering that we take on this second Sunday, which is just for those in our church who are hurting financially. We have a normal offering baskets here in the sanctuary, but out in the foyer is a benevolent basket. Even in this last month, we've been able to help some people in some significant ways, which we're very grateful for. So if you'd like to contribute to that, that is out there. If you need help financially, please let us know. All right, please stand for our benediction now. It's going to come from the book of Jude this morning. A fitting way to end in light of what we talked about this morning. Jude, verses 24 and 25 says this, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.